Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host, 42. This week's topic is bananas. So let's unpeel and tuck right into fact number one. The bananas we eat today are very different to those our grandparents would have eaten. But how, you may be wondering. Well, unfortunately, they weren't square and they didn't talk. But they were a completely different species. These days, the variety of bananas most seen in shops is called the Cavendish. However, before the 1950s, most bananas in shops were a variety called Gros Michel, which sounds like something you want to do if you want to cultivate your own girlfriend. The Gros Michel was originally native to Jamaica, but its thick peel and dense bunches made it easy to transport all over the world. When the banana craze swept Europe and America in the late 19th and early 20th century, the Gros Michel was front and center. Think of it like the banana version of the Beatles. A peelable Paul McCartney, if you will. But like all crazes, the Gros Michel's time in the spotlight came to an end. And no, not because of a scandalous affair involving a banana version of Yoko Ono, but because of disease. In the 1950s, the world's banana plantations were under attack from something called Panama disease. This disease, which causes banana plants to wilt and eventually collapse, was devastating to the Gros Michel, and so banana farmers had to put their thinking caps on. So what did they do? Try and develop a cure? Lock all the bananas inside their homes except for an hour of daily exercise? Run around screaming and crying? <laughs> no, they did none of those things. They simply decided to cultivate another type of banana that had been known about for over a hundred years, but had never been grown commercially. The Cavendish, named after William Cavendish, the sixth Duke of Devonshire. They believed the Cavendish to be resistant to Panama disease. Ah, if only we could have grown a new type of human during lockdown. It would have made everything so much easier. Cavendish bananas did indeed prove to be resistant to Panama disease. They also stayed green for several weeks after picking, which made them ideal for long sea voyages to Europe. And so they became the dominant variety, almost overnight. Between 1998 and 2000, almost half of all bananas eaten around the world were Cavendish. And it remains the most popular to this day. So the Cavendish was like the Justin Bieber to the Gros Michel's Beatles. It was a popular new fad that old people could just not get on board with. But before long, it was in everyone's homes and there was nothing we could do about that damn Canadian. <laughs> I mean, banana. However, don't get too used to the Cavendish because we may have to pull another great banana switcheroo any day now. In 2008, reports began emerging from Southeast Asia that a new strain of Panama disease is attacking and killing Cavendish banana plants. This new strain has now spread to other banana farms around the world 
and scientists have yet to find a way to stop it. If the disease really takes hold, then the Cavendish banana could suffer the same grisly fate as its predecessor. And since all it takes is a small handful of contaminated dirt to spread the disease to another banana farm, we're basically screwed. I would make yet another music joke here, but I simply don't listen to enough modern music to make a comparison without making an utter fool of myself. There is some hope for the Cavendish though, at least a flavour. Because its predecessor, the Gros Michel, still exists. In fact, you've probably tasted it at many points during your life. Have you ever wondered why no banana-flavoured things actually taste like bananas? They taste as if you ask someone to describe the flavour of banana who'd only ever eaten one banana five years ago. That's because banana flavouring actually comes from the Gros Michel and not the Cavendish variety. So any banana-flavoured sweets, ice creams or medicine are actually made from a banana that hasn't been sold in shops for decades. Next up, moment from history. Where each week we look back at one particularly odd moment from the past. In this episode, we go back to the night of the 3rd of November, 1888, in southern England. A night which is now known as the Great Sheep Panic. Intrigued? So am I. It was a dark and stormy night, with flashing and crackling in the skies. Now that image is enough to make anyone quake in their boots. But especially tens of thousands of sheep across 200 miles of South English countryside, who, on this particular night, were collectively wetting themselves with terror. How do we know 200 miles worth of sheep were all so terrified? Because, at the same time, roughly 8 o'clock that night, for some reason, the terror for these sheep grew too great. And simultaneously, they burst out of their enclosures and began to run wild across the fields of Oxfordshire and Berkshire. The scale of this mass mutton mayhem was huge. Seemingly no farmer or shepherd was safe from the rampaging rams and unruly ewes. In a letter to a local science magazine, two local seed importers who witnessed the panic wrote, the extent of the occurrence may be judged when we mention that every large farmer, from Wallingford on the one hand to Twyford on the other, has reported that his sheep was similarly frightened. And I know that it sounds like I just made up two places, Wallingford and Twyford, or I've just nicked them out of Lord of the Rings, but I can assure you they're 100% real. We just have really funny place names here in Britain. Did you guys know there are butterflies that drink blood? Or that there's a species of beetle that can shoot boiling liquid out of its butt? Or that blue whales are so big you can swim through their arteries? But there's a species of bat that's so small that it weighs less than a penny. My name's Maya. And my name's Connor. And we are the co-hosts of World's Wildest Podcast. If you guys love nature and you love learning about how crazy it is, Connor and I have over 30 years of experience in wildlife conservation, and we're here to tell you all about them. World's Wildest will take you on a journey to meet Earth's most extreme creatures from the world's strongest to our world's smelliest. Make sure to subscribe for new episodes every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. The witnesses also reported on the extent of the madness. Tens of thousands of sheep, folded in the large sheep breeding districts north, east and west of Reading, 
were taken with a sudden fright. Jumping their hurdles, escaping from the fields, and running hither and thither. Again, it's not just place names that sound funny in England. We also like to use silly sounding words in our daily speech. The two seed importers summed up their report by saying, in fact, there must for some time have been a perfect stampede. I'm not sure what a perfect stampede looks like, but I'm basically imagining a sheep version of Black Friday without any flat screen TVs because one, sheep don't watch those and two, they wouldn't be invented for nearly another hundred years. It wouldn't be until the next morning that they were all rounded up again, presumably by one very tired sheepdog. Many were found cowering in the corners of other fields or hidden under hedges, and some were even still panting from the fright they'd suffered the night before. But what caused such widespread panic? Well, that's the thing. Nobody knows. To this day, nobody can work out what happened that night that would have caused so many sheep over such a huge area to all freak out at the exact same time. One witness wrote in a letter, we would suggest a probability of a slight earthquake being the cause. Now I'm no geographer, but I don't think that Oxfordshire is anywhere near the San Andreas Fault. Some others claim it was human interference, but one British newspaper stated that Malicious mischief was out of the question because a thousand men could not have frightened and released all of those sheep. If this was making the papers, it must have been a really slow news day. Perhaps it was just one really frightening person who was trying to get to sleep and counting sheep in his head wasn't working, so he went for a stroll and counted them in real life. Or maybe a drunkard just decided that he really, really wanted to catch a cloud and take it home with him. One journal offered an explanation that lightning could have been to blame, pointing out that panics have often occurred for sheep are notoriously timid and nervous animals. I suppose the word sheepish doesn't come from nowhere. But it would have had to have been one hell of a lightning bolt to spook tens of thousands of sheep across 200 miles all at once. Surely that's not possible. Also, if sheep are so nervous all of the time, then how come we don't get a recreation of this event every year on bonfire night? Even more interestingly, this exact same thing happened in almost the exact same spot the very next year. Tens of thousands of sheep in southern England burst from their pens at the exact same time for no apparent reason. Once again, this panic took place nowhere else in the country except for the area surrounding Oxfordshire and Berkshire. Perhaps it is something to do with the location. Maybe Oxfordshire was created on an ancient sheep burial ground. Or maybe sheep-hating aliens really like to visit Reading and land their spaceships in the nearby fields. Anyway, the point is, nobody has ever come up with a totally concrete answer as to why all those sheep went crazy all those years ago, be it lightning, an earthquake, or sheep-hating aliens. The Great Sheep Panic of 1888 remains one of the strangest and most intriguing nights in the history of British livestock. And there aren't many intriguing nights in the history of British livestock, believe me. No matter which way you look into this story, all the details are just a little bit too woolly. Sorry, I couldn't resist.
Okay, we're going to take a short break now, and very soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. Banana peels are way more useful than you think they are. That thick outside bit of a banana, whether you call it a peel or a skin or something else completely different, often gets the short end of the stick, in my opinion. They're ripped off their plants, headfirst, battered and knocked around on the way to the supermarket, only to be bought, sliced open and then chucked straight in the bin. The actual sweet banana inside gets all the fame and glory, whilst the best appeal can hope for is a cameo in some crappy slapstick comedy sketch or a cliched old joke. Which is a shame, because banana peels are actually incredibly useful. For instance, did you know banana peels can act as a natural shoe polisher? If you take a banana peel and rub the inside of it on your leather or faux leather shoes, then you'll be amazed to see scuffs and scrapes instantly disappear, leaving your shoes looking shiny and new. Whether you want to walk around smelling like old banana peel is a different matter entirely. Banana peels also have the same effect on silver, so if for some reason you've got the local lord or lady coming over for dinner, and you forgot to buy silver polish? Then try rubbing a banana peel over your knives and forks instead. Although please do it before your guests arrive, because that lord and lady won't be sticking around for very long otherwise. It's not just your shoes and bits of random cutlery banana peels can help remove blemishes from. They also contain high levels of lectin and zinc, which are really useful for fighting acne. Apparently, although I haven't tried this, if you take the peel of a slightly overripe banana and rub it on your face until it turns brown and slimy, that's the banana peel by the way, not your face, then leave that mush on your face for 10 minutes and wash it away. It helps reduce spots and zits and even prevents new ones from appearing. Other cosmetic uses for banana peels include moisturizing your feet, soothing insect bites, and even removing warts. Although this particular method does include taping a piece of banana peel to the bottom of your foot for three weeks. So make sure you don't need to, you know, go outside or go to work or socialize or do literally anything for three weeks because no one will ever want to talk to you again if you have a manky old banana peel strapped to the bottom of your foot. I can't guarantee that, but I'm pretty sure. Banana peels are also very helpful for first aid. Apparently, if you freeze two banana peels and place one on the front of your head and the other on the back, it will cure your headache. Probably because you feel so silly you forgot you had a headache in the first place. You can also use a banana peel to remove splinters. Just rub the inside of the peel over the splinter for 15 minutes and you should feel it slowly start to rise to the surface of your skin making it much easier to pluck out with a pair of tweezers. So there you have it, the humble banana peel deserves far more credit than many people give it. But please don't start storing all your old banana peels in a drawer just in case you need them. After about a week it won't be a pretty sight. Fact number three. If you're allergic to bananas, 
you'll also be allergic to condoms. If you do have a banana allergy, you're actually part of a very elite group. Less than 1% of the world's population are allergic to this yellow fruit. And almost all of that same group are likely to be allergic to latex. And latex, as we know, is used to make rubber gloves, balloons, and condoms. So what's the connection exactly? And before you ask, no, it's nothing to do with the shape of a banana. Although that is a funny coincidence. Whilst latex can be produced synthetically, it's also a naturally occurring substance. Natural latex can be found in about 10% of all flowering plants as a white milky goop that's often confused for tree sap. So next time you're enjoying a stroll in the woods and see a beautiful old tree, try not to let the fact that it's filled with the stuff they use to make condoms ruin that special moment. Latex is made up of a vast array of sugars, oils and proteins. And some of those proteins are very similar to the ones found in foods like chestnuts, avocados, kiwis and, you guessed it, bananas. It's the proteins specifically that cause the allergies to both bananas and latex. However, it's both a blessing and a curse because the offending proteins break down almost as soon as they enter the human body. So even for most people with a banana allergy, it usually only affects the sufferer's lips, tongues and throat. As for the effects of the latex allergy, well, you don't want to know. You can also experience a mild allergic reaction to bananas if you suffer from something called pollen food syndrome. Common amongst hay fever sufferers, pollen food syndrome is set off by the proteins found in certain fruits and vegetables. These proteins are very similar to those found in pollen. <coughs> so when you eat a bunch of fruit, your body can mistake those proteins for pollen, inducing a histamine reaction. There you go, that's what you get for trying to be healthy. You should just have a biscuit next time. It's much better for you. If you are in that special, if I can call it special, 1% of people that have a banana allergy, then you might also want to stay away from papayas, tomatoes, potatoes and bell peppers, as they too have the same proteins. Bad luck if you're someone who enjoys a potato and pepper pizza with a papaya-infused banana split for dessert. But that would be one hell of a last meal. When it comes to condoms, though, don't worry. These days there are plenty of latex-free alternatives out there that won't leave your private parts looking like something out of a horror movie. Modern condoms are made from a variety of substances other than latex, including polyurethane and lambskin which is actually the lining of a sheep's large intestine. Although I should point out that whilst lambskin condoms are better for the environment because they're biodegradable and are just as effective as latex condoms at preventing pregnancy, the US Center for Disease Control and Prevention warns that they're not as effective at keeping away sexually transmitted infections. Although once you tell someone that you've got a bit of dead sheep's gut on the end of your todger, I don't think that'll be much of a problem for you anyway. And that was Random Interesting Facts. Thank you for listening, and I'd absolutely love to hear your comments and suggestions for future episodes. And also be sure to like, review, and subscribe. Please do leave a comment if you've learned something new from this episode. 
And if you have your very own random interesting fact that you're just bursting to share with me, then tweet it using the hashtag RiffPodcast. That's R-I-F Podcast. So remember, tweet your interesting fact using the hashtag RiffPodcast. And thanks again for listening.